Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. The book of Hebrews chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 20 and considering Christian hope. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Christian hope. Give attention to God's holy word. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no other greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, when an oath of confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice to be called your people. We rejoice in your promise that where your people are gathered, you will be present with them. And so we ask now, O Lord, that you would manifest your presence to us, that you would fill this house of glory with your glory, and that the words of the apostle would be found true, that we as the gathered church of the Lord Jesus Christ are indeed the holy of holies upon earth. We ask, O Lord, that you would show us your glory, and that in showing us your glory, we might endure unto final glory. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if you have ever traveled on the open ocean. It's not very common anymore. We have airplanes today to travel from continent to continent. I have never been out in the open sea. I've, I've been out on a whale-watching boat, and we went a little bit out from shore. You could still see the shore, so it wasn't quite the open ocean. Uh, I've, I've mentioned this man before. My father-in-law was a sailor in the U.S. Navy, and he traveled on an aircraft carrier from North America to the Mediterranean. He went down into the Persian Gulf, did a lot of traveling on the open ocean. And one of the things that we know, because we read about this in books, but that you can't really know until you experience, like my father-in-law experienced, is that the ocean is a very powerful, very vast, and very unstable way to travel. Even as he was traveling on a nuclear submarine, some of the largest ships in the world, in the middle of the Atlantic when a storm kicks up, that ship bobs around like a rubber ducky in your bathtub, even though it's a massive piece of engineering. And when sailors travel on the ocean like this, when they spend a lot of time out at sea, they, they come back and they show what we call sea legs. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody with sea legs, but when a sailor gets off the boat and they start walking on the dock, they tend to lean 
and real everywhere as they're walking on dry land. Of course, the reason for this is when you're out there bobbing around on the ocean, you have to learn how to stay upright. And the only way to stay upright is to lean to one side when you're out at sea. All of this is to remind us and to drive home the illustration that traveling by sea is very unstable. When you're out there on the boat and the ocean is rocking and rolling, you are rocking and rolling right along with it. Well, the Christian life is very much like traveling by sea. We travel across a vast ocean of time and experience, and many times in our life, the sea might be calm, still as glass. Other times in our life, the waves of trial and tribulation come. Persecutions and different circumstances arise where our little raft is being tossed around like a rubber ducky in the middle of the Atlantic. Well, of course, you know that sailors, if they want their boat to stay in one place, have to use an anchor. An anchor is dropped from the ship and it it beds itself in the ocean floor or the sea floor, and so that as long as that anchor holds, it doesn't matter what happens to the ship up top. It's not going to float away. It's not going to go anywhere. The anchor grounds the ship so that no matter how bad the storm is, the ship will stay right where it's supposed to. Likewise, in the Christian life, because our life is like an ocean voyage, and because there are trials and tribulations that will arise in your life, perhaps some of you are going through those trials and tribulations. Perhaps some of you feel like the sailor in the middle of the Atlantic going to and fro and unable to tell which way is up. Because our life is like this, God has given us an anchor. An anchor for the soul, which we call hope. This hope is so important to us. This hope is so central to the Christian life that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we are saved by hope. Hope is one of the things that saves us. Paul puts it at the same level as faith. And because this hope is so important, because it is so essential... The Holy Spirit gives us strong encouragement for our hope. In this passage especially, we're going to find that the Holy Spirit strengthens our hope in three ways. The Holy Spirit strengthens our hope with the example of Abraham, with the oath of God, and the victory of Christ. The Holy Spirit strengthens our hope by the example of Abraham, the oath of God, and the victory of Christ. Now, just a word of comment. Well, I'll give you the outline. Uh, Verses 13 through 15 is the example of Abraham. Verses 16 through 18 is the oath of God. And verses 19 and 20 is the victory of Christ. Verses 13 through 15, the example of Abraham. 16 through 18, the oath of God. And verses 19 through 20 is the victory of Christ. Now, before we delve into the details of this passage, I just want to give a little bit of explanation for why I have phrased the main idea of this sermon the way that I have. The Holy Spirit 
is the one that Christ has promised to us. The Holy Spirit is the great gift and reality of the new covenant. It is the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost as the great sign and the great proof that Jesus was ascended. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 1, it is the Holy Spirit who seals you unto eternal salvation. And so as we look at this passage, this inspired Word of God, this Scripture that was written by a man who was moved by the Holy Spirit, not prompted by his own creativity, as we look at this passage, I want you to recognize it is the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you through these words. And it is through these words that the Holy Spirit works in your life. This is essential to understand before we even get into this passage. Because without the work of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be saved. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, none of us can attain eternal salvation. But with the work of the Spirit, with His power poured out in the name of Christ, with His sealing work that He does through the Word, the preached Word, the prayed Word, the sacramental Word, With his sealing work, you will be preserved unto eternal salvation. God will fulfill his promises in your life. And he strengthens your hope in those realities, firstly with the example of Abraham. We look in verses 13 through 15. The author, as he begins this section of our letter, remember the the broader context. He has just exhorted this Hebrew audience, probably, probably Jews, He's exhorted this Hebrew audience that they need to be diligent in pursuing Christian maturity. They need to be diligent in the Christian faith. They need to persevere in the Christian faith. They are, as we're going to learn later on in the letter, they have gone through one persecution already. And they are probably on the verge of another persecution Their raft is rocking and rolling. The sea is kicked up, and they are scared of continuing as Christians. Well, the author has exhorted them, you must endure as a Christian. You must remain anchored to the Lord. And then he turns to the example of Abraham to strengthen that anchor. He starts in verse 13. He says, for when God made promise to Abraham... Because he could swear by none greater, greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. The quote that the author uses here is from Genesis 22. Turn with me to Genesis 22. This chapter in the book of Genesis, we might call the climax of Abraham's life. Abraham, of course, is often used as an example of faith. James uses him this way in his letter. Paul will use him in this way in the book of Romans. Paul uses him also in the book of Galatians. And the author of the Hebrews uses him here in our passage, and they cite chapter 22, specifically verses 15 through 18. But there's an important thing to keep in mind about Abraham and his example. Sometimes, Paul especially, will reference Abraham in the beginning of his life. 
or perhaps in the middle course of his life. Chapter 17, where the Lord gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And it's there we find the words that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul uses that example to say that this is an example of justification by faith alone. But the example of Abraham is not only an example of initial faith, of coming into the faith of Christ. Abraham is also an example of persevering in faith. He's an example of patiently enduring, and through patiently enduring, obtaining the promises. That's the section that's quoted here in Genesis 22. Remember what happens in Genesis 22. This is a good little piece of Bible trivia for you, especially covenant children. Genesis 22 is the sacrifice of Isaac. As I said, this is the climax of Abraham's life. Abraham has been given all of these promises. Abraham was told explicitly, in Isaac your seed shall be called. And now we come to chapter 22, and the Lord tests his faith and says, I want you to go up to the top of the mountain and offer Isaac as a burnt offering. The son of promise, whom I've said, you will uh, see the fulfillment of my promises. That's the one that I want you to sacrifice. Of course, you know, Abraham believed God. Not just initially, not just in the middle season of his life, but Abraham believed God fully. And he was ready to offer his son. In fact, he had the knife in the air. Then the angel had to stop him and say, now I know that you fear God. And because he feared God, now God says this to him in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. A couple of things to notice about this exchange. First, the author of Hebrews quotes this episode, but he doesn't quote it verbatim. Remember what the author of Hebrews said. Because God could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. That's not a word-for-word citation. Notice what it says in verse 16. Verse 16, the actual words are, by myself I have sworn. And then he goes in to the promise. The second thing to notice is the language of the promise that God gives to Abraham. Blessing I will bless. Multiplying I will multiply. This is a a way of phrasing things. It's a a oath formula. It's a... uh, very high covenantal formula. When, when God speaks in this way, multiplying, I will multiply. Blessing, I will bless. That's a covenantal promise that God is giving. In the first covenant made with man, God told Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. For the day you will eat of it, dying you will die. It's the same phraseology. It's the same way that it's put. And so this kind of phrasing denotes a covenantal promise that God is giving. He reiterates this promise to Abraham in the same kind of words. 
Notice also the twofold nature of this promise. First, Abraham is promised prosperity. Multiplying, I will multiply you. Your descendants shall be as the sand of the seashore and as the stars of heaven. Later on we read in verses, uh, in chapters 24 and 25, that Abraham was given a daughter-in-law and that when Abraham is uh, passing away, it says that, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in, in uh, 24, the beginning of 24, uh, Abraham was old and well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things, meaning he's very prosperous, he's very wealthy. Now, I want to encourage you with this, prophecy, uh, with this promise, because I think we have a hard time with wealth. We have a hard time understanding what wealth is and how God gives wealth to his people. Part of the reason we have a hard time with this is we live in a Marxist age. We live in an age that's infested with uh, communist ideology. And what does communist ideology teach? Wealth is evil. The wealthy are oppressors. Those who have an abundance stole it in some way from those who don't have an abundance. That's the age in which we live. Now, I trust and hope that nobody in this room accepts Marxist ideology. Nobody thinks like a communist. However, just like the fish in the ocean doesn't know that he's wet, we who live in a communist society can be influenced without our knowing it. And part of that influence is that there's a there seems to be a sense of guilt when it comes to having material possessions. There's a sense of um, shame that we're able to provide for our needs honestly in the sight of God and in the sight of men. Well, all of this is a result of the age in which we live. God promised Abraham prosperity, material prosperity. And just so you think I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel... Christ makes the exact same promise in Mark chapter 10. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Notice that the problem with riches is not riches. The problem with riches is trusting in the riches, is putting your confidence in wealth, is anchoring your hope to material prosperity. He goes on, and they were astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then here's the heart of what I wanted to share with you. Peter began to say to him, Sir, uh, see, we have left all and followed you. Jesus answered, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's. 
who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Notice what Christ is saying. Christ is saying essentially this. God wants to prosper you so long as you put the priorities in the right order. Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added unto you. Christ tells the disciples here, If you have sacrificed for my sake and the gospel, I will provide for you a hundredfold family and lands and prosperity with persecutions and in the life to come, eternal life. And so God promises Abraham prosperity. Now let me just say one more thing about this. Wealth is the means that God uses, one of the means that God uses to advance his kingdom. Material prosperity is one of the things that God uses to advance his kingdom. Think about it like this. You cannot have a preacher unless you can support him financially. If you can't support a preacher financially, it's very difficult to get someone to administer the word and sacraments to you. So there's a certain level of material prosperity that's required for the church to function. God promises that to Abraham. Not only does he promise that, he promises more fundamentally the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice in Genesis uh, 22, he says, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was a promise, as Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 3, this was a promise that was focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What God is telling Abraham is that because you have believed me from your offspring, from your bloodline, the Messiah who will save the world will come. And so God promised to Abraham the Lord Jesus Christ. One last thing to notice about the promise made to Abraham. This promise was ratified to him after a sacrifice. After Abraham had made the ultimate sacrifice, God reassured him of the promise. And this brings us to a question. This brings us to a question for ourselves. I know sometimes the example of Abraham is misused. Preachers will say, what's the Isaac in your life that you need to sacrifice? At one level, that can be a little hokey and corny. But at another level, it's very true. Remember what Christ said to the disciples. He who gave up father, mother, brother, sisters, sons, daughters, and lands for my sake. Abraham gave up his only son for the sake of the gospel. What is the thing in your life that God wants you to sacrifice for his service? You see, sacrificing in this way, sacrificing the way that Abraham sacrificed, is a sign that we really do believe God's promises. Take wealth. We've been talking about wealth. The, the willingness to sacrifice our money for the service of the kingdom of God is proof that I trust in the kingdom of God and not in my riches. It's proof that I believe God's promises. And so Abraham makes the sacrifice. It is confirmed unto him. And then in verse 15 it says, And so, after he had patiently endured, 
he inherited the promise. Well, we're given the example of Abraham, but this example is not everything the Holy Spirit gives us. He gives us also the oath of God in verses 16 through 18. And as he begins to to strengthen our faith even more, I want you to think about it this way. The example of Abraham, as it were, is a historical example. You you might read uh, the history of somebody in your field, whatever field it is that you're in. You could read the history of some great example in that uh, field you've been a part of, and you can say, okay, this has happened once before. This has already happened once. That's interesting. But simply seeing something happen in the past is not enough to give us confidence right now unless we have a legal right right now. And that's what the author gives us, that's what the Holy Spirit gives us in God's oath. It is the legal uh, justification for hoping in God's promises. He starts off with the principle in verse 16, Men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. You know, you see these kind of things in courtrooms. You often hear people report testimony that happens in court, and they always add this little phrase, don't they? So-and-so said this in front of Congress under oath. So-and-so said this in open court under oath. See, even our secular courts, and in many ways our godless society, recognizes that oaths are serious. Oaths bring an end to the questions. Because if you lie under oath, it's a very serious crime. It's a perjury. And you can be open to many penalties. And so even in our civil courts, the principle that the author is highlighting here, when men swear an oath, that's the end of all dispute. But notice the other thing he says here. They don't just swear oaths. They swear by the greater You see, if you and I are having a dispute, your son kicked my son. No, your son kicked my son. We're we're at the same level here. We have the same level of knowledge. We have the same level of standing. What we do then is go to a higher authority and say that uh, the one who's higher than me, who's greater than me, will verify what I'm saying. What's implied here is that the greater can punish the deceit. If one of us is lying, the greater is able to punish us because they are greater. Men swear by the greater. That's the principle that's at play here. But remember what the author of Hebrews says. God can swear by no one greater. There is nobody greater than God that he can swear to. There's nobody above God that can judge his actions that can test his word to see if it's true. So God cannot swear by the greater. And so, he swears by himself. He takes an oath upon his own authority. And as the author says, he swore by himself. One thing just to learn about this, just to keep in mind. What the author is telling us here about God swearing by himself, the the reason he has to put it this way is because God truly is 
the greatest over all things. As we read in Revelation 19, God is omnipotent. He is the all-powerful. He is sovereign over all things that come to pass. There is none greater than His power. There is none greater than His truth. There is none greater than His justice. The church is not greater than Him. The the principles of historical uh, Marxism are not greater than Him. There is nothing greater than the living God. Because there's nothing greater than the living God, He has to swear by Himself... And notice the reason for it. He's talked about the principle. Now he tells us the purpose of this oath in verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. If God is greater than all that exists, and there's nobody that can judge him, why would he swear an oath? You see, if you have a dispute with me, You might need to get something out of me. I might need to pay you reparations. I might need to suffer for a crime that I've committed against you. And so you might drag me into the court and force me to swear an oath. Because I owe you something. There is nobody that God owes something to. So why would he swear this oath? He swears it for your benefit. He swears it so that your hope would be strengthened. He doesn't do it for himself. He doesn't need to do it for himself. He is the greatest there is. He swears this oath to prove to you the immutability of his counsel. Notice also he does it for your benefit. And and notice the precise thing that God is confirming. The immutability of his counsel. Now here's a big 50 cent theological word for you. Immutability means impossible to change. It means unchangeable. It doesn't mean that it will never change. It means that it is impossible for it to change. There is no possibility that God's counsel, His eternal purpose towards His elect, can ever change. That's what He is swearing to. Now, This is exactly what we need for our hope, isn't it? Because if your life is as I suspect it is, it's traveling across an ocean of time, circumstances, and relationships that you have no control over. And as you travel over the ocean and it rolls and rocks over the waves, what is the one reality that you're aware of? Change. Shifting sand. Up, down, left, right, dark, light, cold, hot, wet, dry, all of it is changing all the time. And what God swears to is that no matter what else changes in your life, my purposes don't. My counsel is unchangeable. My promise to you, just as it was to Abraham, is immutable. Even though I said Isaac is the one, sacrifice Isaac, None of that will change. Because as Paul says of Abraham, he reasoned, God is going to raise the dead because his word is unchangeable. If my son dies, God will bring him back from the dead because God has promised and his word never changes. 
Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you with this at this point. God's purposes are unchangeable. He's shown it in the example of Abraham. And now he swears an oath that these things are unchangeable. His purpose towards you, his people, will never fail. And what is that purpose he gives to you? Multiplying, I will multiply you. Blessing, I will bless you. Partially in this life, as Christ says, I will restore a hundredfold in this life, along with persecutions. And in the end, eternal life. Glory with God forever. There's a reminder here, at least it's, it's uh, implicit in this passage, that what God is holding out to you, what He has promised to you, is His own eternal glory. We're going to see it a little bit in the victory of Christ, but keep that in mind. God's promise is unchangeable. Notice also, finally, in verses 17 and 18, we've seen the principle, there is His purpose in the oath, that His counsel is unmutable. And he does it with multiple things. He says that by two immutable things, in that it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. He describes the way in which God's oath functions. He says that there are two immutable things. You know, when a ship comes into port and they want to... um, anchor it to the dock, a diligent sailor will put two lines on the boat. They'll put two attachments to the dock so that that boat cannot get away. Not just one, because if you only put one, the back end will swing out. If you only put it on the back, the front end will swing out. And so you put two ropes on the dock to secure it. Well, likewise, the Lord gives us not just one immutable thing, even though that would be enough. He gives us two immutable things. Now, pretty much all commentators agree the two immutable things here are the Word itself. Notice he says it's impossible for God to lie. Because God is who He is, He does not lie. Whatever He says is absolutely true. So the Word of the promise by itself is immutable. But God knows that we're weak. God knows that the ocean is going up and down in our lives. God knows that we need a firm anchor. And so he adds the oath, which is the second immutable thing. So by these two immutable things, we have strong consolation. And notice he describes further those to whom this promise applies, those to whom God is speaking to. We who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This is a description of true Christians. This, this whole chapter we've been looking at, chapters 5 and 6, but especially 6, is, is a reference to what does a true Christian look like. Well, a true Christian is one who is growing in grace, is one who produces the fruits of righteousness, and it is one who has fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set, before, uh, uh, set before us. What's the refuge that he's talking about? He's talking about escape from divine judgment. He's talking about fleeing from the wrath to come. Because 
God is the sovereign God. He's also the most holy God. And this holy God will not allow his creation to stay in the corruption of sin. We read it in Revelation 19. The Lamb of God, the rider on the white horse, will conquer his enemies. He will subdue all nations under the reign of Jehovah. And because God never lies, you need to flee for refuge. You need to flee to the arms of Christ because only those who are in the arms of Christ will survive the wrath to come. It's an easy doctrine to forget sometimes, I think. It's easy for us to forget that God judges sin. We take his long-suffering and patience to mean he's unjust. He won't really punish me. No, he's being patient with you. He's being good to you. He's giving you time to repent. And so this promise is for those who have fled for refuge, who have fled into the arms of Christ to escape the wrath to come, but not only to escape wrath, not only to flee into the arms of Jesus, but also to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. And as I mentioned before, the hope that is set before us is the glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in John 14. John 14, Christ is encouraging the disciples and he is encouraging them with this hope. John 14, verse 1. Very interesting how the Lord begins. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not the sea disturb your hearts. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the hope that is laid before us. This is the thing the Christian heart longs for and looks for and hopes for. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 that we are citizens of heaven to which we look awaiting for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we have. Not only have we been delivered from wrath, but we will be received into eternal glory that where Christ is, there we shall be also. And so, are you one of the ones the promise is made to? Have you fled for refuge from the wrath to come? And are you looking for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or perhaps you're trusting in some other promise that God has made. Perhaps you live the Christian life because your family lived the Christian life. Perhaps you uh, are following the Christian way because the Christian way makes the most sense to your intellect. Well, be warned and be encouraged. Those who inherit the promise are those who have fled from the wrath to come and are looking 
for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're looking for His glory. And so the Lord gives us the example of Abraham. He also gives us the oath of God. But that's still not enough. That's still not enough. You see, the historical example from the Old Testament is is good food for our souls. Being reminded of God's covenantal promises that by two immutable things, His promises will never change, that is not even enough. He gives us one final proof, one final thing to strengthen our hope. And this thing that He's going to give us is something Abraham didn't have. This is something that King David didn't have. This is something that none of the saints had until the new covenant era. This is one of the the precious realities of the new covenant that we enjoy now and that the author now gives to us, and that is the victory of Christ. Notice what he says. Verse 19, he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. He stole my metaphor. He describes this hope as an anchor of the soul. This is the same idea as a ship in the ocean, and the anchor reaches down into the, 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 the sea floor, and as long as that anchor is fixed, the boat is not going to drift away. Doesn't matter what the winds of doctrine say, doesn't matter what the circumstances do, the boat can be tossed to and fro. As long as the anchor holds, the boat is safe, and it's not going to go anywhere. But I want you to to keep in mind, though, that that this anchor of our soul is a little bit different than the anchor of men on the sea. Notice what he says next. He says, we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Now, the veil that's referred to here is the veil of the temple. It's the veil of the tabernacle. Remember, he's writing to a Hebrew audience. They would have understood these references immediately. When you refer to the veil in the uh, Solomon's temple and in the second temple as well, there was the outer court where the people could gather and approach God's presence. There was the inner holy place where the priest could enter and uh, take care of the lampstand and replace the showbread and offer incense on the incense altar. But even within that, there was the Holy of Holies, the the special presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and the the glory cloud abided in the Holy of Holies. That was covered with a veil. You could not look into that place because it was behind the veil. Well, the Lord told Moses at Mount Sinai when he gave him the blueprints for the tabernacle that the tabernacle was a reflection of heavenly realities. And so the veil was, as it were, the boundary of heaven. The place where God's glory was manifested is heaven itself. And so it represented the ascent into the heavenly places. As the high priest went further into the temple, he was, as it were, ascending higher and higher into the heavenly realm. So to say that this hope is an anchor which enters the presence behind the veil... He's telling us that this anchor is not grounded on the earth. It's grounded in heaven. This anchor is not sunk into the mud of the sea floor. 
It's lodged in the throne room of the Most High God. Now think about what this means for your life. Instead of the anchor going downward and you going up and down with the ocean waves, there are going to be some times in your life where, as they say, the bottom falls out. Everything that you thought was sure and certain is just taken away from you. And there is nothing under your feet. But the anchor is fixed in heaven. The anchor still holds you. And so even though everything in this life may be taken away from you, because this anchor is directed upwards, and you may be suspended in complete uncertainty, the anchor still holds. It enters into the presence beyond the veil. It's not fixed on the earth. It's fixed in heaven. He goes on to describe this anchor, and he says that this anchor is not just fixed in heaven, but it's attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the Old Testament system, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they, they put a rope on his foot. Because if, if he messed up, if he didn't do the ceremony right, or perhaps he was indulging in secret sins that nobody knew about except him and God, and he goes into the Holy of Holies, he could be struck dead. And so the other priest would have to say, well, we can't go in there, but we've got to get him out of there. So they would yank on the rope and pull him out. With our high priest, because he's perfectly righteous and he never fails, there is a rope tied to his foot. Or should we say tied to his hand? It's this anchor of the soul. But it's not so that you can pull him out. It's so that he can pull you up. He pulls you into the presence. He has already arrived. He is already in the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies in God's throne room, as we read in the book of Revelation, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has a rope on his hand tied to your foot so that when it's your time, he pulls you up into glory with him according to God's promise that never changes. And this is the hope that gives us confidence. This is the hope that anchors our souls in the midst of all the circumstances of life, and all the sacrifices we are required to make. One final thing I want to encourage you with on this note. Abraham's example proves it. God's oath ratifies it. The victory of Christ secures God's promises to you. What this means, then, is that we should be a sacrificing people. Just as Abraham was a sacrificing worshiper of God, he sacrificed the one thing that he loved, the one thing that would prolong his family, the one thing that would fulfill God's promises. He gave it away because he trusted in God. We also should be a sacrificing people. We live in a day where it perhaps is hard to sacrifice. I don't mean it's hard to deal with difficulties. We all have difficulties. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about voluntarily giving up something for the sake of the kingdom. Voluntarily giving up your time. Voluntarily giving up your money. Voluntarily giving up your ease and comfort. Sacrificing for the sake of the kingdom. Perhaps even to life itself. You see, the reason we have a hard time sacrificing is we think, I need that thing. I need that money. I need that time. 
I need my life. But remember, the rope is tied to your ankle. You are not the one that's going to walk to heaven. Christ is going to be the one that pulls you up to heaven, even when you die. That's why we sacrifice, because we have this hope and strong consolation for those who have fled to refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has fulfilled all of your promises and who, as it were, anchors our soul to him by the promises. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to walk in the way of Abraham, sacrificing those things you've called us to sacrifice. And we pray that you would fulfill your promise and and remind us and repeat to us every day, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. O Lord, we ask that you would do all of this for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.